This podcast is sponsored by the Davenant Institute and Davenant Hall, reimagining theological education. Visit davenanthall.com. The Davenant Institute seeks to retrieve the riches of classical Protestantism to renew and build up the contemporary church. Key to this mission is their educational arm, Davenant Hall. In an age where much theological education both overlooks the riches of church history and keeps students in debt, Davenant Hall is reimagining theological education. Davenant Hall takes full advantage of digital technology to make high-quality theological education affordable via online courses. Students can simply audit a single class or enroll in a degree program, including subject-specific certificates, PhD supervision, and the flagship MLIT program, which includes pastoral tracks for Baptist, Anglican, and Reformed or Presbyterian ministry. Enroll in classes at any time during the academic year. Knowing that in-person fellowship is key to Christian formation, Davenant hosts regular residentials at their study center in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of South Carolina. Registration for spring term 2024 classes running April to June is now open. Register by March 27th. Fees start at just $225 for a 10-week class with a two-hour Zoom class from expert professors each week. Spring term classes include Male and Female in Modernity with Alistair Roberts, The Reformation and the Modern World with Michael Lynch, Philosophy as a Way of Life with Joseph Minnick and more. Visit DavenantHall.com to find out more. That's DavenantHall.com. This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. What I started to realize is that people, while they are concerned about right feeling, the authority by which they are trying to determine what is the right feeling isn't even that of Scripture. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I am Jonathan Master and I'm joined here by my friend and co-host James Dalzell. James, how are you? I'm well, Jonathan. We are delighted to welcome our next guest because he's someone whom we see five days a week and have the privilege of working alongside uh, Dr. Keith Plummer. Dr. Plummer is a professor at Cairn University, where James and I also teach. And if I can give you a little picture as listeners of our hallway, uh, James and Keith are at one end and they're always talking together and I'm all the way at the other end and I sometimes have to walk down to join them. Sometimes they, they make the long march down toward me, but this is exciting for me to get a chance to have all three of us talking at the same time. Keith, thanks for joining us today. Oh, sure. Thanks for having me. We want to talk just for a few minutes here about emotions. Uh, it seems as if, particularly in our circles, that the idea of how you feel about something is sort of the prime arbiter of whether or not it's truthful. And so I want to get at this just by talking about emotions a, a little bit. Are, are emotions an important part of our human condition and specifically in our lives as Christians? How, how would you see the emotions fitting into our, our lives as believers? Well, I think there are two poles to be avoided. One is to make too much of emotions, and the other one is to adopt some kind of stoicism where we say, well, they don't really play any part. Uh, I would think in terms of creation, either we've got to see emotions as a result of the fall in total, or we have to say that God created us as humans, as image bearers, 
with emotions, and that because they play a significant role in terms of our relationships, both with each other and uh, with God. And uh, the Bible is filled with a, a lot of reference to emotions with respect to uh, when certain things are appropriate causes of rejoicing, even anger, uh, and other times when um, sorrow and uh, sadness are uh, appropriate. So I would say they are important to the, the Christian life and just to the experience of being human. One of the things that we see today, though, is that people will say, I, I feel something, and, and therefore that means it, it's true. I, I get emails all the time, I'm sure you do as well, where someone will say, I feel as if my grade should be different in this class, or I feel as if, um, you know, this this should have been handled differently and the outcome should be different. I, I, why why do you think it is that that, that kind of language has become so pervasive? And, and what should we say about that as Christians? Well, whenever I come across that kind of language, like in a paper, I am quick to cross it out and say, think. If someone is really meaning to um, say what it is that they're trying to make an argument for, uh, but I do see that feel and think are used synonymously by uh, a number of people, particularly a number of uh, young young people. And I think that some people are of the mind that as long as I say I feel, I don't really need an argument. I don't need to offer any kind of support. This is the strongest case to be made. And I think that has to do with the rampant subjectivism that our culture is um, assuming, and that bleeds into our our Christian life as well. Keith, if you have uh, someone write that in a paper or, or give that as in place of an argument, I feel that. Um, you've mentioned briefly that feelings and emotions certainly have a place and an important place in the human condition and even the Christian experience. But I'm wondering if in a certain sense, saying I feel incubates your position from a traditional response. Like, how could you say, if someone says, well, I feel this way, uh, it, it seems sort of awkward to say, well, you're wrong about that. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Like, how, and, how and, could you be wrong about what you're feeling? Right. And, you know, I think that makes me think about how um, sometimes Christians will say things like, uh, the only the only thing that can't be argued with is a changed life. And so we talk to our, about our experience as opposed to giving reasons for why we believe that Christianity is true. And I, I think you're on to something that uh, maybe by couching things in terms of feeling, we are isolating or insulating ourselves from criticism. And also, uh, it could be that in couching things in terms of what I feel, I am alleviating the necessity to offer reasons or support in support of what it is that I'm claiming. Well spoken by an apologetics professor. Um, <laughs> I, I know uh, certainly how, how you would approach that. So maybe this question, I'll turn it a little bit. Um, sometimes we talk about feelings as if they're the sorts of things that can be directed or instructed. We talk about, you know, we're going to come and learn how to feel about something mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to how to think about it or how to behave. Um, our emotional responses, can they be right or wrong? And if so, can they be taught or directed? 
we can't simply, if it's a matter of can I will myself in a particular moment to muster up a particular feeling, I would say no. But I would say that uh, the truth of God and the practice of truth, I believe, are the um, kinds of things that we have to engage in in order to move more in the direction of right feeling. So maybe putting those together, I think you and I in a conversation uh, sometime past, we were talking about this new prioritization of feeling where we sort of, we bypass the mind and we bypass the conduct or ethics and we go straight to, and we try to sort of short circuit and go straight to getting the feelings right. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. you, I think you use the term orthopathy, uh, the idea yes. of right feeling or right passions is the, is the new sort of leading orthodoxy in a sense. Um, I'm, I'm wondering how you would situate if there is such a thing as orthopathy, that is to say, right or sound feelings, a right way to emotively respond to something, um, how would you situate that vis-a-vis orthodoxy, right thinking or right doctrine or orthopraxy, right practice? What is, in other words, are those just three categories that can be addressed independent of each other, or is there a, is there a certain order among them um, in terms of how we, how we address feelings? Yeah, you know, I, I was thinking about that term orthopathy, and uh, what I what I started to realize is that people, while they are concerned about orthopathy, uh, right feeling, the authority by which they are trying to determine what is the right feeling isn't even that of Scripture necessarily; hmm. it's of the self. And so, I think there is such thing as real orthopathy, but I do believe that that is to be a fruit of orthodoxy and orthopraxy in the sense of my knowing, trusting, and obeying the truth of God, and that resulting in, though imperfectly to be sure, uh, that resulting in my emotions being more well-formed and informed. So... Keith, I'm wondering, we've talked a little bit about how this manifests itself just in people's language. They'll say, I feel this, and, and they really mean, I think this. And and so sometimes it just becomes a, a language issue. But but it does seem as if, particularly in certain areas of uh, moral judgment, um, certain kinds of objections to the Christian faith, the, the notion of feelings being the driver uh, has mm-hmm. become more prominent. And so I'm wondering if you could... Give us some areas where you've seen that in particular. In other words, uh, I think what you're arguing is feelings are important and they need to be brought in line with truth. But right. it, uh, oftentimes it's it's viewed in exactly the opposite way. The truth must reflect what it is that I feel. And I, I and and so I think we we all agree that there's that broader trend. Are there specific areas where you've really seen that come to the forefront and you've had to take it on at more than just a linguistic level, more than just the level of, oh, you really mean I think? Sure. I think one of the areas that we see this increasingly is in believers who, desirous of experiencing some kind of divine guidance, will um, identify strong urges, desires, and so forth as like divine directives. And so if I'm feeling this, 
this is God leading me to do whatever this is. And it may not be something that is, you know, obviously someone might try to rationalize sinful things that way. But I think even things that in themselves are not sinful, that would be good things. I've seen many believers assume that their their emotions are kind of primary means by which God just tells them what to do. So there's an identification with, you know, almost the voice of God in some respects that I'm having the strong feeling. Uh, another place where I see this, I was just uh, reading through some apologetics papers where students had to uh, ask certain questions of non a non-Christian. It, it didn't have to be an atheist necessarily. It could be anyone who is not identifying as a Christian. And as you mentioned, objections to the Christian faith. I was really overwhelmed by the, the number of times that someone said things like, I don't feel it's right for God to control our lives. Uh, I don't feel it's right for God to judge. Uh, I don't feel it's right to uh, tell someone else that their beliefs are in error. And it, it's so pervasive. I was really, really struck by how common that is. Those are two interesting examples because on the one hand, feelings are seen as the way in which we know what God is saying to us or telling right. us to do. And on the other hand, feelings are being used to stand in judgment of what God mm -hmm. has said in, in pretty specific ways. And to say that because I feel this, God can't have actually meant what he said and, and that can't be true. Exactly. There, it seems, Keith, like what you're describing that there's a there's a new sense in which the I feel feel becomes the the new thou shalt or thou shalt not, and the I yeah. feel becomes the new um, you know this is what you shall believe or this is this is what is true. So that in, instead of feelings being um, like let's say informed by a right understanding of righteousness or goodness or beauty. Rather than having uh, some sort of objective reality that that guides and and either you know repulses or attracts us emotively, uh, rather the emotions themselves are telling us what is true and lovely and good and ought be done. Yes, and maybe that's that. I, maybe that's the prioritizing of orthopathy uh, that we've that you and I have discussed for for over time. Yes, I I don't know if I think we we've talked about this in the past, but. If you remember the, the Sprite commercial that used the tagline, Obey Your Thirst. Right. I think that that was a masterful uh, slogan because, you know, it's talking about more than just obedience to your physical thirst. But it's saying that if there's an authority that is going to be um, submitted to, it is your your desires, your feelings and so forth. And, and I think that is what many of us as Christians and many non-Christians are functionally operating according to, as you put it, and I think you put it very well, that the, the authority, the thou, the thou shalt or thou shalt not, is what, what I feel. And it, in some cases, particularly in the non-Christian category, because Christians would say, well, of course, God is above my, my feelings. But uh, in a non-Christian mindset, there is nothing higher than the the self. So, yeah, I do think that that is something that is very prevalent. 
do, do you find Keith that when you challenge people on this, either within the context of uh, the Christian church or, or even outside of it, do, do you find that they are generally receptive? In other words, do they, do they at some level understand that? Yes, you're right. That's not really an argument or, do you think it's become so pervasive that, in fact, that is an argument that that people at a conscious level think should rule the day? I so desperately want to say uh, the former, but I think it is so prevalent that people are often very defensive of the the challenge, no matter how politely it might be offered. Uh, because it is seen as, in some cases as infringing on someone's uh, rights. In other cases, it is seen as, particularly when you're dealing with Christians who are relying upon their feelings as a, a source of divine guidance, it, it, it's seen as calling into question something that is dear and precious to them and perhaps even challenging their, their view of God or they perceive it as, challenging their relationship with God, which is not what is intended. But I, I think that it is more resisted than acknowledged as, well, there's something there. There are some cases where people will do that. But overall, I think that it has it's been so deeply entrenched that people are a lot more resistant. It is deeply entrenched, and yet at the same time, it strikes me that there are a number of forces at work to get us, to convince us uh, it, by any means possible to feel certain ways about certain things. So on the one hand, mm -hmm. there is this authority given to your feelings. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, you, you'd better feel certain ways about certain things or else uh, you're guilty of a thought crime at, at, at least. Yes. And yeah, you're, you're right about that. But even there, I think that the appeals that are made are appealing to the emotions more than anything rational, even in that case. Right, right, right. No, that's a good point. But, yeah. So the orthopathy, though, does become a sort of um, replacement orthodoxy in a sense, and it becomes the new thou shalt and thou shalt not. It's interesting. It's a subjective standard, but then there's a desire in our culture to apply that standard objectively and universally. Uh, yes. So that I think at the end of the day, even those who prioritize the feelings believe that there's there is such a thing as orthopathy. There is a right way to emotively respond. We might think of atrocities that we we respond with righteous indignation or with or with uh, appropriate you know repulsion or fear. Or you know, there there are right ways to respond. But the question is again for us as Christians, what is our standard? Uh, by which to direct and shape our emotions in a God-honoring way um, submitted to his truth and to his counsel. Correct. And, and I think another factor that contributes to this is to invest in what you just described, it takes time. It, it takes thought, contemplation. It takes, as we were discussing before, practice. Uh, I think some of the things that James K.A. Smith has brought about in terms of the relationship between our desires and emotions and the, the habits, the cultural liturgies that we give ourselves to come into play here as well. And it is so much easier 
and more immediate to just aim for the emotions than to invest in what is necessary for the formation of the our desires and our emotions according to uh, the truth of God and submitting to that. Keith, you're a true friend. We couldn't have asked just anyone to come on and talk about feelings. So we, we really appreciate uh, your willingness to do this. Uh, it is an important topic in all seriousness. We want to be people who do not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoice in the truth. And mm. this has given us a lot to think about along those lines. So thanks a lot, Keith. Sure. Great talking with you guys. Look forward to seeing you in the halls. <laughs> all right. Thank you for listening to Theology on the Go. If there is anyone that you know who might benefit from hearing this program, feel free to please pass it along to them. We're available on placefortruth.org and wherever you download podcasts. If you are able to make a donation to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals in order to help with projects like Theology on the Go, you can do that on placefortruth.org or on alliancenet.org, and that'll also help you keep up with all the other events that are upcoming and all the other resources that are available from the Alliance. And thanks, as always, for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.